0: Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning, and indeed, it is our desire to follow you with the world behind us. And Lord, this world is tainted with sin. It's filled with sorrow and hurt and pain, and this Sunday morning, we only need to reflect on what has transpired even this past week. We pray for family and friends who are mourning in Texas at a senseless and evil slaughter of lives, young people. Lord, we just pray for that situation. We pray for our leaders. We, we pray for the Heritage Christian community as a loss of a graduate this week who was killed in a car accident. Lord, we, we pray for our own. We think of Patricia Gardner, who's lost a husband after 61 years this week. And so, Lord, comfort her. Put your arms around her. And so, Father, with all of this, we, we just ask that to, as we come to the text, that you would kind of clear the cobwebs, put some blinders on, and allow us to just spend some time together around your word thank you for the truth that is here and a reminder that indeed this world is not our home and we rejoice in that in Jesus name amen well if you would turn to nehemiah chapter 3 nehemiah chapter 3 you remember those days when you were little and you had those family reunions <laughs> They would rattle off names and events and you would stare like a deer in headlights. headlight. I don't know who those people are. That happened 30 years ago. You know, Aunt so-and-so was married to Uncle so-and-so and they lived down on Boulder Lane and you know, on the list goes, right? And you're, you said, I, I don't know who those people are. Well, Nehemiah 3 <laughs> is loaded. If you read it this week in preparation for Sunday, you've certainly found that there is a a laundry list of names, difficult to pronounce, information that appears to be repetitive and appears, to be quite honest, meaningless and obscure locations that even today, some of them have not been discovered. And so you go through that list and you're going, what? And it's not a surprise if you, most commentators or commentaries or, or um, more popular works on Nehemiah, they skip right over chapter 3. <laughs> and you'll be glad that I didn't call on you to do scripture reading this morning, I assure you. Th- let's just look at a few verses, and, and we're going to unpack this, because in the midst of the list all all scripture is God breathed. All scripture is important. There is some significant things happening that can be missed in this, this list of names. Look at chapter three, verse one. Then Eliashib, the high priest and his priestly colleagues arose and built the sheep gate. They sanctified it, erected us the doors, working as far as the towers of the hundred and the towers of Hananel. The men of Jericho built adjacent to it, and Zachar, the son of Immer built adjacent to them. The sons of Hassanah rebuilt the fish gate. They laid its beams and positioned its doors, its uh, bolts, and its bars. And on this list goes, if you've just joined us in our study of Nehemiah, this cupbearer in the Persian court has asked permission from the king of Persia, the most powerful man in the world of the day, Artaxerxes II, to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls that are in ruins. And you ask, well, why would a foreign king allow some local yokels to fortify their city? Well, the reason being is Egypt had invaded the Persian territory previously to that, and what Artaxerxes is doing, he's creating these buffer zones, these protections, in case the Egyptians should return. So that's what's going on here. And despite this uh, the the disray of the buildings, despite some opposition that we've already seen, Nehemiah and the local Jews are gonna rebuild the walls in less than two months is an amazing feat. We're gonna talk more on this today. But as we look at this, as the group comes together, I've used another acronym, and it's UNITY. In fact, if we could show the next slide. I've, I've laid out, this is there in your outline, that is there, but you'll see this as we move through. Uh, so forgive me if it, I'm just trying to think, how can we remember this? The project was undertaken with spiritual fervor. We're gonna see that, leadership, the project, As you can see, needed participation from everyone. So there's our N, I, it involved everyone. It took sacrifice, and then we're gonna see it was yoked with humility and encouragement. It's significant, so let's unpack this, and we'll see this as we go along. We're not gonna read every name this morning. That's something you can do this afternoon as you're frying your hamburgers on the grill for Memorial Day. So, letter A of your outline, if you're following along in the backside of the bulletin or online, the project was undertaken with spiritual direction. It's interesting, who is the first name mentioned? Nehemiah? No. Artaxerxes? No. The high priest. Did you catch that? it's the text. Eliashib, the high priest, and his priestly colleagues are the ones who, and, and it's interesting, he's mentioned here, he's mentioned again in verses 20 and 21. He almost bookends this entire section. This name, by the way, is common in the Old Testament. One of the priests under the time of David was given that name, for instance. But what's more significant is the high priest is leading this building project. Nehemiah is not mentioned, again, just to highlight. Nehemiah will also mention the Levites in verse seventeen, the temple servants and the priests in verse twenty eight and what 's interesting, even some of the names, for instance Mermoth, who's mentioned in verse twenty one look at verse twenty one again, I told you this is like a family reunion right you 're going, who are these people? Uh, Merrimath and is the son of Uriah, the son of Hakos Hakos was a priest, so the, the priestly line is heavily involved with building the walls. And you say, well, why is that significant? Well, in, in an ancient Near Eastern culture, the king himself was the one who would lead a construction project. He would bring a brick. And it was, it was like, you know, the, the shovel of digging the dirt for a ground dedication, right? A building dedication. And and the the king would bring a brick but the high priest here for the israelites is who leads the charge again not the governor of the region not nehemiah but a priest why because what is this project for for god's glory it's so significant and so that the high priest is leading it very very important it's been asked well why would the israelites who who want to Reflect the glory of God, build a wall around their city. Aren't we to be out there sharing the good news about our God? Remember that the ancient walls served as symbols of identity and solidarity. And one scholar writes, and he's spot on the building of these walls would be a testimony to God's power rather than to their own, and to their determination to be a holy place, separated from others for their faithfulness to Him. That's why the psalmist states in Psalm 42, hey, walk around the walls, count the gates. This is our God that we serve. And so here, again, it is this project, as we see, is undertaken first with spiritual direction. And there's much application there, which we'll get to later when we think about the church. Second thing in your notes, the project needed participation from the entire community. In chapter three, we'll see 40 different sections of the walls or gates that need to be restored. 40, that's massive. And it's gonna take a a village. It's gonna take a ton of people to be involved in order to do this. And it's interesting as you lay out the list of names. I, I did that this week was up till two in the morning listing out the names and I thought, oh my, I didn't see this before. And you start to do a comparison, you realize first of all, if you're to take note of this, first is there's family units involved. Look at verse 12, this is an interesting comment. Shalom, the son of Halohesh, the head of the half district of Jerusalem, worked on the section adjacent to him, assisted by his daughters. Well, now that's interesting. You see a whole family that's involved, but it's not the sons. Most likely he has no sons or they have died. Because according to Numbers 36 under the Mosaic law, now the daughters have to step up to the plate in order to maintain the inheritance that's been given to the family. It's interesting, if you were to look at a map of Jerusalem, this is Shalom and his daughters tackle the largest segment of the entire project. The largest, 82 yards. It's three times as long as any other section. You go, why is that? Why in the world would they have the largest section? Well, here's archeology span coming to play. In 1927, archeologist Crowfoot discovered that the one section of the Nehemiah wall that had the least damage was this section. Most areas, it took 15 feet of construction to bring it back to where it was. This area was only three feet. So Ripmeyer, in his work on Nehemiah and the walls, et cetera, he believes this is one of the reasons they were given this area was, was there's least to do. But nonetheless, here are women involved, a family unit. Three of the individuals in the list, it's three, gen- uh, three uh, generations. So the man is mentioned, his father and his grandfather play a role in this. There's also prominent families that are mentioned. In verse 11, in verse 23, we we read of Hashem, who is the son of Joab. Remember Joab, the whole account with David? And so these individuals are prominent, but they're, they're coming together as family units. That's one group. There's another group that we see, and that are towns that play into this. And verse 2, notice we've already seen this, we read this, it says the men of Jericho, that's 13 miles due west, or excuse me, uh, due east. Uh, there's men of Tokoa in verse 5. Three times Mitzpah is, is mentioned. If we look at a map, let me just show you a couple things here. We can do this. I don't have the clicker today, so we can advance. I'll show you First of all, a map of the city, well, maybe not. Here we go, all right, great. We're gonna start at the Sheep Gate. What you see in the black, which it looks like, I don't know, uh, a tennis racket, sort of, that is the city walls that Nehemiah is going to oversee r- being rebuilt. They'll start in the Sheep Gate and they're gonna move counterclockwise. Now, if we can go two slides in advance, I'll show you something here. Again, we looked at this last week, This is the province of Yehud under the the Persian empire. Notice we said they're surrounded by the enemies. We talked about this, the Samaritans, the Ammonites, the Idumeans, which are the Arabs. But I want you to see something. The towns that are mentioned in chapter three. Next slide, if we could show. Look at the red. These are all the towns that are mentioned in chapter three. I think that's significant, because what it shows is that those in the vicinity of the city are willing to help. Yes, they're surrounded by enemies on on all sides, but the Jewish community and those that live near Jerusalem are saying, hey, we'll be willing to help. And most of them, as you can see, fall within the province of Yehud. And so we see towns that are involved. There is one interesting comment on Tekoa found in verse five. Look at verse five, it says, The men of Tokoa worked on the section adjacent to them, but their town leader, thank you, it says their town leader would not assist with the work of their master. So while towns were being involved, there were certainly still some objection. Why they don't help, we don't know. But I suspect they're playing the political game. They're good politicians. We don't know what's gonna come of this. We're gonna be playing it safe. We're up near, uh, you know, Sanballat is very powerful. The Samaritans, we're just playing it safe. I don't know, that's Hoffman, it, theory. But we see here that not all were involved. But we have family units. We have towns. We have non-Israelites. Look at verse seven. Look at this. It says, adjacent to them worked, and then you've got a man's name who is a Gibeonite, and you've got another guy who is a Maronithite. Uh, g- these are Canaanite descents. These are not Jews. Remember the Gibeonites? Turn to Joshua chapter 9. Look at this. Joshua 9. Don't, don't, don't miss this, this family, this tribe. In, when Joshua defeats Jericho and he defeats ai there's a tribe that lives near jerusalem that's scared spitless and remember they disguise themselves act like they've traveled forever and they they want to do a treaty with the israelites to protect themselves well they do uh, joshua doesn't pray to the lord first so he would have realized what was going on he doesn't do that he, he signs a treaty and then realizes he's been tricked and notice what he says in verse 22 of joshua 9 joshua 9:22 the great Jewish leader Joshua summons the Gibeonites and he says to them, why did you trick me by saying we live far away from you? Now you are condemned to perpetual servitude as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. And that's exactly what they're doing in Nehemiah 3. They are helping serve the Israelites. Same with the Maronithites or whatever their names are, right? And the parasites. They're all together serving, right? And and, You see God's word coming true yet again as we come to this point in Nehemiah 3. So family units, towns, non-Israelites. You've also got craftsmen and tradesmen. Look at verse 8. Look at this. It says here in the text, Uziel, the son of Har Hayal, a member of the Goldsmiths Guild, right? Worked on the section adjacent to them. And Hananiah, a member of the Perfume Guild. You've got people, the goldsmith, they're, they're used to, to working under, you know, very intricate design. Perfume, what, what do they know about masonry work? And yet they're involved. This task demands everyone be involved. And so that's what you see going on. So craftsmen and tradesmen and ruling officials are also mentioned in several locations. Ezra, in verse 19, we're told he's the head of Mitzpah. And so you have, while Tekoa's leaders didn't help, other towns did, and their leaders were there. I, I love verse 15. Uh, we-, we meet a guy named Shalom who's helping, and it says he, he handles the fountain gate the Pool of Siloam, and the stairs that lead to the City of David. It's a huge area, but it's very significant. That's the Southern defense system. And so here is a ruler who says, I understand all of this. We're gonna tackle this area, because it is key, and we'll make sure that it's secure. And so, what do we see? A project that's undertaken, it's it's led, uh, first and foremost, it's undertaken by spiritual leadership. It calls for all to be involved, and it calls that everyone is working as one. This is the third point in your notes. I think this is the most difficult. Yeah, I can see Jericho men coming to assist and this guy's daughters, but that we're working together as one, that's pretty significant, isn't it? You know, no, I, I think that color of that... Plaster over here should be red. No, no, blue is perfect. And can't you just see uh, that could have occurred? And No, they come together and understand the importance led by the, the priestly line. These fellows were working side by side. One scholar writes, all these different people, people who otherwise wouldn't have worked together on anything, now are all together. And so this project It's involving everyone working as one. And the project took great sacrifice. Look at verse 28 in this laundry list of names. It's easy to miss this. Above the horse gate, the priest worked each in front of his house. Nehemiah is very clever because one of the things that he does when he assigns what section you're doing, we see in in some other places in chapter 3, it's near where they live. If you're building a wall that's in front of your house, what are you going to make sure that wall is standing really good and strong, right? And so there is sacrifice that's involved. One commentator writes By arranging each man to work close to his own home, Nehemiah makes it easy for them to get to work, to be sustained while on the job because they can get uh, a lunch break. They're right there, right? And to safeguard those who are nearest and dearest to them. So this isn't just willy-nilly. It's been thought through very carefully. Remember, Nehemiah was there for three days before he even announced to the people. He walked the city walls. He pulled an all-nighter, investigating and determining on how best to tackle this. And so, here we see these individuals. It's interesting, later in verse 28, the priests are working near the horse gate. Well, the horse gate was near what's called the Ophel today. That's where the priests lived. And so we see all this taking place. And finally, the project was yoked with humility and encouragement. There is a Nehemiah mentioned in chapter three, but it's not the Nehemiah of the book. He's not mentioned anywhere in chapter three. Now, I don't know about you, but I think I would have dropped my name a couple times. I'm overseeing this project, Nehemiah, the cupbearer. You know, no there's nothing he, he lists 75 individuals in chapter 3 15 different groups and Nehemiah is not mentioned but what is clear Nehemiah knew his people he, he knew the accomplishments he knew what they were going to do and yet he walks in humility and he identifies chapter 2 verse 17 with the people He's like, I'm, I'm one of them this is what I do Nehemiah was only implicitly referred again as the overseer in this chapter. He sought collective involvement and relinquished tasks to various groups and individuals. I'm sure there were times when Nehemiah thought, mm, I could do that better than that. No, no, that stone needs to go there. No, that, move the plaster over there. And he may have given some suggestions, but he's tasked the people to do it, which is amazing. Well, what do we do with this laundry list, right? What do we do with these 75 names and 15 groups? And we can see how it's broken down, which is significant. But but what's going on here? How do we apply this? And in your notes, I've given you three principles. The first of these, as believers, the Lord has gone to great lengths to ensure that we are all part of one body, the church, hasn't he? And think about that this morning as we sit here. He purchased the church with the blood of his own son. Christ loves, nourishes, cherishes, and will present to himself blameless in all her glory. One day, that is the church as his bride. And the church constitutes Christ's principal work on this globe today. Now, what is the church? What does it mean? What's the term? It means to be called out. ecclesia. out is ek. Ekklesia is, is the gathering to call the churches the new testament is made up of those who are called out from the world from darkness from damnation from paganism to become members of the body of christ we're called to be part of one just as this group back in nehemiah 3 came together and said yeah we got an assignment to do for god's glory we as the church have that responsibility as well flying solo is very difficult in the church in fact and we have a video just to tell you about the problems of flying solo. There are some things in life you can't do alone, like have a party, (laughs) wrestle, (laughs) have a sack race. Step aside, fools, I got this. Okay, I have it. Yeah, yeah. Play Marco Polo. Marco. Fish out of water. Ride a teeter totter. <laughs> oh. Get engaged. Will you marry me? Yes. Move a heavy, awkward piece of furniture. Fingers to the. or water ski. Some things should not be attempted without the help of others. Your spiritual journey is one of them. When it comes to that, we're definitely better together. importance of the church, right? (laughs) Romans 12, verses 3 through 5, For by grace has been given to me, I say to every one of you, not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but as to think with sober discernment, as God has distributed to each of you a measure of faith. For just as in one body we have many members, and not all the members serve the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ individually we are members who belong to one another I remember helping out at a church years ago when I was a college student on Sundays and every Sunday they sang this song and uh, I just it, it's, the lyrics are great <laughs> uh, bind us together Lord bind us together with cords that cannot be broken but that should be the, the cry of the church right bind us together one Pastor writes, on Sundays, God wants us to do more than sing songs together and have wonderful worship experiences. He wants us to knit the fabric of our lives together. For many, churches become all about me, what I'm learning, what I'm seeking, what I'm desperate for, what I need, how I've affected, what can I do? We see ourselves as isolated individuals all seeking personal encounters with God wherever we can find them. Sadly, this Reflects our individualistic, obsessive culture that we live in rather than seeing ourselves as part of a worship community. Nehemiah 3 is reminding, we have to work together. We are one body. When one hurts, we all hurt. When one rejoices, we all rejoice. That's part of the church. Second point in your notes, unless all the gifts are used, the community will have difficulty doing the work that God has given them. I mean, think about this. If you're taking notes, the Lord is the source for every gift. That's why a church is not a group of friends you've picked. It's a group of brothers and sisters God has picked for you. (laughs) Think about that for a minute. You know, as you look across the room, some we gravitate towards easier than others, but God has brought us together and he has given gift or gifts to each person for the cause of us as a body of believers. And so every gift has been entrusted to each member. It's intentional and thus, I would argue, it's vital for our ministry. Otherwise, why would God give a gift if it wasn't significant? Failure to work with others or recognize their worth is ultimately, I would argue, an affront to God. That's how God has gifted them. He's brought them to the table. And and part of that, I mean, you think about the distribution of gifts. I mean, look at Nehemiah 3. I mean, the goldsmiths could have said, uh-uh, my hands are too delicate for such stonework. The leaders could have said, This is beneath me. Priests could claim, no, I'm here for the Lord's work. <laughs> you know, I, I'm exempt. The daughters of Shalom, while they could have declared the task is too much, it's too great for us. Or those Gibeonites could have argued it's not our problem. We're not an Israeli, you deal with it, right? We are here together for glorifying the Lord and the Lord has given, he is the source of the gifts. He's given the gifts intentionally, they're vital. And third, every person has been given at least one gift. The question, of course, is this morning is, to what extent are you involved in your local church? Now, I am preaching to the choir. We have one of the most incredible congregations that I know of. I'm biased. But when you have 200 and some people that are volunteering monthly in what we do as a church, that's incredible. It really is. And so I want to thank you for how you're involved. Keep it up. Whether that's working tech, and boy, this morning it was rough going because... We didn't have was, we had a skeletal crew due to Memorial Day, and uh, even uh, the musicians, et cetera. Thank you for the many ways that you serve back in nursery as well. and And I've had people say, "Well, I don't know what my gift is. well let me let me give you a few questions. In fact, these are raised in the book "Life in the Body of Christ" by Curtis Thomas. And I thought these were really good. In determining what is your gift or what are your gifts, he asked, what type of service? Are you personally drawn to what? Are you, what do you enjoy? What what resonates with you? God's wired you a particular way. Maybe it's folding bulletins. I don't know. Maybe it's no, no, no. I I, I love to sing. What have I been educated or trained to do? God has in, allowed you. To, he's invested time and energy and those resources for you. What specific needs are there in the church? Right? We've got the Deaf Church. I'm so grateful for those that are helping out, like Tony and others who, who minister in that area. What have I, when have I been met with success in attempting to exercise a gift or need? In other words, where, where do I find that the gift or my talents and abilities are best being used? Perhaps you need to have some friends or family members say, hey, this is where I see your strengths lie, you know? my wife is quick to tell me it is not singing in the choir that's all right that's good I um, check that one off it's, and it's not there there's other areas right that we can serve etc and, and again these are God given gifts and so one we have to be careful on how we handle one another in the church but also we cannot just sit and store the gift and assume well you know I'll wait. No, 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 no. We need to be using our gifts for God's glory. And I read Nehemiah 3, and you see these goldsmiths. You see these perfume guys. You, 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 you see these young ladies that are serving. They're all involved. They're rolling up their sleeves and saying, yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to get this project done. And by God's grace, that is exactly what is accomplished. Well, third thing in your notes, eyes focused on the Lord's work recognizes the importance of God's people. We need to be encouraging one another. You know, recognizing the importance of each member and the role that he or she plays in the body of Christ, I wrote down a couple of things. First, it's encouraging each person in their walk with the Lord. First Thessalonians 5, Therefore, encourage one another, build up each other, just as you have been doing. I mean, let's face it, building walls isn't pleasant. I can imagine as they're they're constructing this, the the sweat's coming down, they're getting their fingernails dirty, the perfume guys are saying, I've never smelled this bad, I don't know. You you have all this going on. Keep it up, that looks great. I can just see Nehemiah walking around. Hey, that's great. You got that section done. And it's so hard, involved in church work, you can do your best, and there's always someone who's gonna come along and maybe criticize. And so the question is, when's the last time you thank someone for serving at the church? Whether it's working in nursery, whether it's passing out a bulletin. Uh, I think in this day and age where it's harder and harder to find workers, I'm quick to say to the server, thank you for serving today. (laughs) You know, being grateful for those that are involved in the church. And with service, you face huge obstacles and you wonder sometimes, is it really worth it? And that encouragement comes along and it guides and encourages us. How do we encourage? Well, certainly a pat on the back, a handwritten note, a word of thanks, but I I also think quoting truths from scripture is so important. You know, as mentioned in my prayer, we as a congregation have been faced with much, and I know there's some this morning who are struggling in light of the news this week, in light of the journeys you might be walking through, and and the question is, you know, where is the Lord in all this? And this is a chance for the body to come alongside and say, hey, the Lord's in charge. God uses all things for his purpose, whether it's good or evil. The Lord never is the one who does the evil, but he can use it. He's not to be blamed. And ultimately, God will judge the evil. What God does promise is he comes alongside those who are mourning. God promises the story is not over The Lord is faithful. And these are the words that we can speak to one another as we journey, as we tackle this project, the church, just as those Israelites did for one another, undoubtedly so in those 52 days of building, encouraging one another, exhorting one another. Galatians 6, brothers and sisters, if a person is discovered in some sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a person in a spirit of gentleness. Pay close attention, notice what Paul says, to yourself so that you're not tempted as well. Carry one another's burdens. I mean, let's face it, if there's sin, if we're all one, if there's sin in the camp, it's going to affect the whole church. Just ask Ananias and Sapphira. Right? No, we don't have that happening today as much, but <laughs> I mean, uh, there's, sin in the camp has to be dealt with because it, it affects the whole body. And so exhorting one another in love, bearing one another's burdens, and finally praying for one another. A prayerless church member, I would argue, is a great hindrance to the body. Charles Spurgeon said, he is in the like a that one who does not pray is like a rotting bone or a decayed tooth. Before long, He does not contribute to the benefit of the brethren, the saints. He will become a danger and a sorrow to them. Neglect of private prayer is the locus which devours the strength of the church. And it's true. So we as one, as we come together, we encourage, we exhort, and we pray for one another. It's vital. It's vital. It's easy to stand. Again, it's easy to stand on the sidelines and find fault. We are not perfect. Hate to tell you. You've probably already figured that out. But I'm not perfect. Our our staff is not perfect. We as a church are not perfect. We seek to exalt the Lord. We seek to deal with our deficiencies and our weaknesses. But we need to be a part of the solution. And again, I'm preaching to the choir. This is not an issue here. Um, um, Keep up doing what you're doing. And and Nehemiah 3 reminds us of this. Uh, Put Tom Crago on the spot. Tom was the chair of our Bible department years ago when I taught with him. And I remember him saying once, anyone can tear down a barn, not everyone can build it. I thought that was great. We need to be encouraging one another, coming alongside, exhorting as well as praying. R.C. Sproul writes, how desperately sad is the fact that the church is known by schisms and not unity, ignorance, not knowledge, and indecisiveness rather than maturity. How it must break God's heart to see us continue in such a poverty-stricken condition in light of what he has done, what he stands ready to do, has the resources to accomplish, and is defined as our calling in Christ. Nehemiah is a glorious example of what it means to come together for the cause of the Lord, for his glory. Nehemiah 3. Yes, it is a laundry list. (laughs) Yes, it's difficult to sort through and pronounce all those names. But underlying it are some very, very important truths for us as a body of Christ. Father, we we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you have seen fit this mystery called the church to, to birth it. You established it through your, death, your son's death, burial, and resurrection, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. You used the church as a means to exalt your name, declare your name on this globe. And Father, there's a day coming when we, the church, the bride, will be united with the groom, with your son. Lord, in the process, you have given us the spirit, you've given us gifting in order to accomplish the task, and you've done it by calling us to work and, as one. And Lord, I thank you for this congregation, because indeed they model that so well. Oh, we're not perfect, but and we, we need to shore up certain things, but in the process, Lord, you've provided a group of individuals who love you and love one another and are ready to serve. Lord, continue to put a hedge of protection around us. Continue to go before us. Thank you for how you've allowed us to have land on 161st. As we talk about building, there's a lot of question marks, but it's kind of exciting because we see you go before us. And as Nehemiah declared in chapter 2, your hand goes before, and as it does, it prospers, it blesses. And so, Lord, we lay all of this at your feet. Help us to be a part that is enhancing the body, not hindering it. In Jesus' name.